right. Hey, good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. There are the lights. Here we go. Um, how's that? Is everybody doing good? Yes? Okay, we're ready uh, to jump into what I have called the most important sermon I've preached so far today. Um, because this Sunday and next Sunday, I believe, are the two most important chapters in the entire Bible. And, um, and so I've been praying, we've been praying as a church body that God would revive us, right? That, that last week I really dug into that, that um, so often the moments of revival that have happened throughout history have happened at the beginning of the reading of the book of Romans. And my prayer is that that would happen here. That would happen for you. Revival doesn't happen like in large groups. It happens in you. It happens personally first before it becomes something bigger. And so my prayer during this series is would you let the Holy Spirit revive something inside of you? Would you? Would you? That's the question last week I said. Would you God, right? It's not could you God. God can. The, what we are desiring is to say, would you God? Would you do this in our hearts? If you want that, would you say Amen. Amen. Like, we want that this morning, and we want that in our lives. We're in a series called The Road to Easter, and, and we're just covering the first chapters, first five chapters of the book of Romans leading up to Easter Sunday on April 9th, and that's going to be an awesome Sunday. It's going to be powerful. We're doing three gatherings that day at 8 a.m., 9.30, and 11, so it's different gathering times because of that middle one at 9.30 and adding an 8 o'clock. So if you're coming on Easter, we're making room for you uh, between those gatherings. Uh, kids' ministry will be available during the 9.30 and the 11. So not the 8 o'clock. So if you come with kids at the 8, they're joining you in here, and we're worshiping together, okay? We're trying to help out our, our kids' ministry workers um, that morning as well. So, it, yeah, so we're leading to Easter, and we're answering the question, why did it have to happen? Why did Jesus have to go to the cross? Why did Jesus have to conquer death and raise again? Like, why? And that's what we're talking about on the road to Easter as we get there. We're answering the question, why it had to happen? And today, we're, I, today's a big answer to that question. Um, we're, we're going to dig into in this series, okay? Now, I don't know what you're coming with today, but my prayer is that you're coming open-handed and open-hearted and ready. Is that how you've come today? Uh, some of you have. If you haven't today, um, just so you know, you've been prayed for, and, uh, and so let, let God do what He wants to do this morning. Let Him speak to you. Um, come, come with the expectation that God wants to speak, because when we get into God's Word and we listen to the Holy Spirit, He does His thing, and He works if we allow Him to. So we wanted to. Now, if you haven't been with us in any of these series, we, we teach you the Bible. That's what we do here at New Hope. And so we're going to be going through the whole book of Romans from like now till the end of August, okay? So there's a lot that we're going to be digging into. It's going to be three different series as we go through the book. But, um, but we want to give you tools to get into the Bible on your own throughout the week. That's why we create these series guides for every single series we do. If you don't know how to, like, during the week spend time with God— we've given you this tool. It, it, it shows you how to, what we call as Christians, we call it devotions. Um, and we call it that because we're devoting our time to God during the day. That's why we call it that. And so um, for you to spend some intentional time praying to God, reading His Word, and, um, and we've created these sheets that give you all the tools to do that, okay? So if you want to do that, you can grab a printed copy of one of these series guides on the table in the back on your way out this morning. You can always use it on our app, on our website. We have it everywhere. And on the other side is a reading plan. And so each week you're going to read the scriptures leading up to the Sunday. So you're going to be already ready for what we're preaching on, and the Holy Spirit's already going to be doing stuff in you, and so that you can dig into God's Word, and we can dig into it together, prepared and ready and expectant, okay? So grab one of those if you don't have one, and we can get into it. 
The other thing that's on those is the memory verse, right? At the bottom, we have two memory verses, one on each side of that reading guide, because we want to hide God's Word in our minds. And this is the, this is the process that usually happens. We put it in our minds, and it moves from our, our minds to our hearts, right? From our head to our hearts. And, and so that we allow God to work in our hearts so that then it goes from our hearts to our hands, right? We do something with it. It's just not like knowledge. If all it is is knowledge, all it is is religion, Jesus didn't come for religion. He actually, like, demolished religion. He, he wants us to hear his word, hide it in our hearts, and then do something with it, to live differently, to look differently, and to look more like him and look more like heaven. And, um, and so that's why we memorize scriptures. And so the scripture that we're memorizing during the first part of this series is Romans 3, 23 through 24. And I want us to read this out loud together, as loud as you can. Um, and, and let's read this memory verse together. Everybody ready? All right, here we go. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. This is what we're talking about today. Like, right there, this is it. This is today's message um, that we're talking about this morning as we're digging into this. The fact that all have sinned and we all need a Savior. Amen? And, uh, and so we're going to get into that. Now, if you have your Bibles, I always say, you know, bring your Bibles with you. If you've got a physical Bible, awesome. If you have a digital Bible on your phone or wherever you have it, open it up to Romans chapter 1 with me. Um, if you want a Bible, by the way, we always have free Bibles on the table around the wall on the other side. Grab one of those Bibles. Take it home with you. It's our gift to you. Um, we want you to have a Scripture. And so we're, I'm just, just, you know, this is an interesting message, okay? Because I'm preaching, I'm starting in uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 24, and we're going to Romans chapter 3, verse like something, 30 something, I don't know. I'm doing a lot of scripture today, and, uh, and so give me some, give me grace, I guess, this morning, because we're, typically I, you know, we preach on one chapter or a small section. Today, we're going deep, and we're going into a lot. So I'm not going to read all of that at the beginning of the sermon, but I am going to read the passages kind of setting up the scene for what we're talking about, starting in verse 18. So if you have... Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Let's stand together as we read this. Um, here at New Hope, we stand in honor of God's Word when we uh, read it together at the beginning of the message, because it's, it's us showing honor to God and honor to His Word that He's given us. All right, so this is what it says, starting in verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images of made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. All right, we're going to stop there for this reading. So God, we thank you that your word is true. It's alive. It's active. The Holy Spirit is revealing it to us. And this morning, we need that revelation. We need your, your word revealed to our hearts, God. And so we're asking, would you show yourself to us in your word today? Would you open us in such a way that only you can? And would you use your word, God, to free us today? Some are coming here in bondage. Some are coming here 
carrying a lot of guilt. Some are coming here this morning, they're carrying a lot of baggage and woundedness. And you want to free them. And so, would you do that today, God? So we give this time to you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. We said amen. Amen. All right, go ahead. Have a seat. And let's, let's shout revival. No, that was weak. Come on now. Thank you. Let's say it again. Revival. That's what we're longing for, right? It's not revival. Like, that's a, that, that's, bleh. okay. So we're talking about revival this morning. Um, let, me, let me set up Romans again really quick, okay? I'm going to do my best to use our time as best as I can to dig into what we're talking about this morning. And so the book of Romans was written by the apostle Paul. Paul had a name before it was Paul, and it was Saul, right? So you look in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the story of the first church, right? It's, it's where the church was born. It's, it's after Jesus died, rose again. He ascended into heaven, and he gave a promise the Holy Spirit was coming. And then on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came down on the disciples in the upper room, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And now the Holy Spirit started this thing called the church, right? The gospel message got preached that Jesus is the only way to God, is the only way to heaven. And he preached that message, and the church was born. But there were these religious Jews that hated this. They're the ones that murdered Jesus. They wanted to snuff out this whole like the way thing is what it was called because they didn't, it pushed against their religion. Saul was one of those religious zealot guys. He wanted to persecute the new church. He wanted to, he, he murder Christians, right? Like he was there at the stoning of Stephen in, in, uh, in the book of Acts. And like he was okay with that and going then arresting Christians and throwing them in jail. Like that's what, that's who Saul was. Until while he was walking to a journey to another city to do just that, and Jesus shows up, blinds him, literally could not see any longer, and spoke to him and said, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? And he meets Jesus. I tell you, when you meet Jesus, things change. Because Saul became Paul. Saul was no longer the persecutor of the church. He became the mouthpiece for the church. He became the one that went from, from city to city, town to town, village to village, preaching the gospel of what Jesus had done to bring salvation first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. You see that phrase all throughout Romans. First to the Jew, then, then to the Gentile. Because the Jews were, the, were given the promise of the Messiah first. And so we're gonna, he said, I'm going to go to the ones who should already know better and so let them know your Messiah has come. And then he went to the Gentiles, those who didn't even have the law, didn't have the promise, and now they're accepted into this family of Christ as well. He's like, all of us are accepted into the family of God. And so he went and he planted these churches and multiplied. And so we see by the end of the book of Acts, the story of Paul actually getting to Rome. We read in this, you know, in the book of Romans, he's saying, I long to come to see you guys. I long and I hear about the faithfulness that you have, the Christ followers in Rome. And, and uh, Rome from where he was was like a 2,000 mile journey to get there. And so it was far away. It was the farthest journey he was going to take, actually. So in this in-between time, he is writing to Rome as he is planting these churches, longing to go to them, longing to encourage them and be encouraged and to be a part of the work of the Spirit in Rome and what, what, um, what God was doing to launch this church in the hub of the world. That's what Rome was, right? The center, center control of the world at that point in history was Rome. And so this is where he's at, um, longing to go to them, but then writing them. The, this is the richest, most, um, I don't know, what, what word do I want to even use? Like potent book of the Bible? In it holds almost all the doctrines of our faith in the book of Romans. 
I mean, it's so rich. That's why we're going to take a lot of time in it. And so in this letter, he, he proclaims um, that at the very beginning, um, what we talked about la- last week, his desire, his passion, the thing that's inside of him is Paul. For I am not ashamed of the what? Of the gospel, because it is the, say it with me, power of God, right? We talked about that last week. The gospel, what, what Christ did for us, the good news that salvation has come, is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. This is what he's preaching through all the book of Romans. Here is the power of God, the dynamis, dynamite, miraculous power that brings salvation. This is what he's preaching to us in the book of Romans. And he's starting, we're going to see as we go through this, he's starting right now at the end of chapter 1 into chapter 3, um, building the case. Building a case for us to understand um, why Easter. Building the case for why Jesus had to do what he had to do. And so today, I want to build the case along with Paul, okay, as, as we dig into this. So we're, I'm using a courtroom as, as, our, as our view. And so I want uh, the picture to be on the back. We're going to about to be in court. All right, we're in court, all right? Uh, we are going to be stepping into the courtroom of heaven, okay? Now, those of you, you know, as, as I talk about this and as we're painting the scene, um, I need you to walk with me to the very end, Okay? Some of you, when I, when I say the word courtroom, some of you are very familiar with what the inside of a courtroom looks like because you've been there a lot, right? So like, like, welcome to New Hope. No perfect people allowed. Like, that's awesome. I'm not using this imagery to make you feel weird, okay? Um, I've been in courtrooms, and I've, I've only been in a few courtrooms, so actually one, one time, um, in Garfield Heights. Uh, I wasn't there because I did anything crazy or, or like atrocious, but I did break the law, so I had to go to court three separate times. Woo! Your pastor was in court and, and called guilty on all, all accounts in the, in the court of law. Um, and let me explain what it was, and I'll talk more about it by the end. But like for me, that courtroom experience, it was stressful. I mean, it was beyond stressful, to be honest with you. Uh, there was a season where I was trying to take care of our family. I was trying to provide for our family. Actually, I was on staff here, but the church didn't have all the resources to pay for my salary. So I decided I'm going to go try to earn my salary. And I bought a house to flip up in Garfield Heights. So I bought a house for like 10 grand. And, uh, and, and the reality is that I learned in the end is that I'm really bad at flipping houses. And so I never did it again. And I'm not ever going to do it again. And if that's your business, awesome. Have fun. For me, I lost like 40,000 in the process. Like I didn't make a dime, which is ridiculous. Um, God had to teach me all lessons. But I had to go to court because I was breaking the building code laws that I didn't even know existed in Garfield Heights. And so I was called by the building office to say, now you have to stand before a judge because you are doing things the way you're not supposed to do them. And it was nerve-wracking because I'd never been to court. I never stood before a judge. And I'm thinking, this is probably just a small thing. I'm just going to be in his office. We're going to talk about it. I'm be like, I'm sorry, my bad, and, and like whatever. But it wasn't. I went into the courtroom, and in that courtroom, right before me, the dude that was in front of the judge was the dude that's like robbed three houses. I'm like, that's a bad dude. Like, this guy is like, and then, and the judge was kind of ticked off at this guy because it's not the first time he was in there talking to the judge, okay? And so he was getting a sentencing, and I'm next. And I'm like, what? (laughs) You made him ticked off. Now I have to go before him and, like, have to, like, plead my case. It was so nerve-wracking. There's something about being in a courtroom because that judge is the one who has the final say, right? And, uh, and today we are sitting, we're going we're gonna to be looking at these passages and entering into the courtroom of heaven. And there is a judge seated on a throne and his name is God. 
And so he's the one sitting at the judge's bench, listening, listening to, to all the arguments, seeing in everybody who's coming into that courtroom and what's going on. And one day, all of us will be sitting before that judge. And so in this scene that we're entering into, the courtroom of heaven, we see through these passages, starting in, in uh, chapter 1, verse 24, we see different people walking into the courtroom. And today I want to talk about three groups, three crowds that enter the courtroom. And, um, and we're, we're going to see where we fit in the midst of this story in Romans chapter 1. So in verse 18, we read just a moment ago, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. There's a judge, his name is God, and he's looking at all those who are godless and full of wickedness. And so the very first crowd who enters into the scene is the crowd that I'm calling the godless. So imagine those that don't believe in God. Like, they're like, hmm, maybe God's a good idea for you, not for me. Like, you know, there's lots of different gods and lots of different ways to get to God. And this is this group of people. And so they're coming into the courtroom, and, and they're entering in, and they're kind of looking around like, well, this is interesting. I wonder what's going to happen. And they've more showed up to see what's going to go on with all the other crowds that showed up. And so they come in, and they sneak in, and they sit in the back row of the, of the courtroom, right? So in the courtroom, you've got some different seats you can sit in. The peanut gallery, maybe, is what you would call it. Like the people who are there just to see what's going on. Some might be, you know, just witnesses that might be called up. Some might be just people just seeing what's happening and who's going to do what. Well, this is that crowd the godless that shows up and they're like, we just want to watch what's happening because it's pretty interesting. I know some of these people. And so they come in, they sneak into the back row and they just start whispering to each other. And they're looking up at the judge and like, oh, that, he doesn't even exist. That judge isn't even up there, you know? Come on now, this is going to be crazy. And, and they're talking about, hey, you know what? I know this one guy who really believes in that judge and believes in that guy and like, he's, he's crazy. And they just start talking and they can't wait. They can't wait to kind of point fingers and, and, uh, and just just judge for themselves what's going on in the room. Now, these individuals called the godless, um, they're missing out. Because even though they're saying he doesn't exist, they're seeing the evidence of him right in front of them. And that's what that passage talks about at the very beginning of uh, chapter or verse 18. Let me pull back up on my phone. It says this, it says, uh, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God, may, God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. God has shown himself to everyone by the creation he has made by the power and the beauty and the intricacies of what is happening at the smallest level of his creation, he has shown himself as being the creator. He's not only the judge, he is God. So some of these come in that are godless, and they believe more in science. They think, well, I believe in science. Science is my thing. And the reality is science actually more and more, science is proving God, not proving that God doesn't exist. It actually takes more faith to believe in science, I think, than to believe in God, because Man, it's crazy when you, when you study and you learn about um, just take a single cell. Your body is made up of lots of different cells. Did you know that? I bet you did. Okay. And, and every single one of those cells is 
so, I mean, it's, it's so small, right? And the more science looks at even the smallest single cell, you'd be amazed at what's happening in a single cell. Down to that smallest level of creation, there is actually inside a single cell over 100,000 different parts of a single cell that is doing a thousand complex actions every single second. Yeah, but God doesn't exist. To me, when I look at creation, I see intelligent design. There was purpose in the way creation happened, right? Like, when we look more and more at science, actually there was this, oh, this boggled my mind. I saw, um, I have a news feed in my Google that just, it gives me all sorts of random things. Anywhere from like Disney World facts to like um, astronomy studies to scientific things, the AI. I'm reading a lot about AI right now because that's what's happening in the moment. And there's this one article that came out from the astronomers that are looking deeper and deeper and deeper into all the universes and the cosmos because the imagery that they have is amazing. If you ever see it, it looks fake. Because you're like, somebody just like painted that. It's like, no, that is the universe. Like that is, that is an actual picture taken of the universe. And the article said, uh, I don't remember the exact title, but this, this is what it was about. It, it said, um, astronomers find proof against the big boom or the big bang, right? Because like they actually disproved that the big bang could have been a thing by the way the universe is actually functioning. Like, well, if that is real and that is real and what we're seeing here then that couldn't have been. And I didn't see that, like, in the national news. or Like, I'm like, why wasn't that in there? Like, these astronomers are, like, proving and disproving things that people have said are true that just, they're not. They're theories. So if you believe that all of this was an accident, boom and poof, down to the smallest single cell having 100,000 parts doing 1,000 things every second, this is, this, is, this is what it would be like. It'd be like, hey, I, I see that giant mountain over there. Yeah, it's a big mountain. Okay, cool. I'm going to take the biggest bomb I can find, and I'm going to drop that bomb on that mountain because I want to create something. And so you drop that bomb on that mountain. That whole mountain explodes, and out of that explosion, all of a sudden there's this creation of the most uh, powerful, intelligent, self-sustaining, computing uh, uh, fighter jet that's ever been out of like just an explosion. Boom, there it is. And for some reason, it can make little jets. Do you know how much faith it would take to actually believe that would happen? For me, it takes more faith to believe not in God than in God. God has shown himself and proven himself so that no one is excused, right? And so here's this godless group hanging out in the back, kind of looking and pointing and just curious, how's this going to go? How's this going to go? So that's, that's crowd number one, the godless. Let's move to crowd number two, okay? Crowd number two is the wicked, all right? So the wicked enter, enter the core. So this group, this group's a little bit different than the godless. This group, they believe that, yeah, there's probably a God. Like, yeah, I think God is real. I know there's some rules that I have to live by, and I also know that I've broken a lot of them. The wicked, like, they know that they're guilty. So the wicked are coming in saying, I know I'm not right. I know I've done bad things. And I'm coming into the courtroom. And just so you know, I know where I go. I'm just going to go straight to the defendant's desk, right, to the table. I I know I'm here. I'm guilty. I already know it. And so that's where I'm going to go. And we'll see what happens. We'll see what the judge says, see what I can work out, you know. That's the wicked. They know they're guilty. 
They've lived into their guilt, and it's seen by everybody else. Everybody knows they've done bad things, and, and they've stepped in and, and lived into bad things. And so now here they are. They're entering the court, and they're sitting before the judge, and they walk right where they believe they should be, at the defendant's table, waiting. This is, this is what uh, Paul describes them as in Romans 1, starting in verse 24. And I'm going to read these passages fairly quickly so as we go through this. But this is how he describes them. So therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over. You're going to see that phrase a lot in this passage. Just keep your ears open to God gave them, okay? God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relationships with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with, one, with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to the depraved mind so that they, would, um, so that they do what ought not be done— they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. See, okay, so we got a list going, okay? Right? I'm going to read the rest in a minute. But here's the thing. As we're reading this right now, I, I'm going to talk to the Christians in the room. Because when we read this, we think of everybody else, right? Okay, I'm just getting real. Like, when you read this, uh, there's some of you, I just read a part of that passage, and some of you are like, oh boy, are we going there? Are we talking about, are we talking about homosexuality? What are we talking about? Like, why? Because here's what happens. It's so easy to judge the wicked. It's so easy to judge people who live in what, all these things that I'm about to read. But the reality is, for us, we make a list of ones that are worse than others. You know, we, we make the, like, priority list of, like, oh, they're really wicked, or they're just kind of wicked. They're kind of bad. They're not really bad. I know really bad people. We're going to learn something about God. He doesn't look at a list and say, yeah, this one's worse than that one. That one's worse than this one. There's different consequences at different times of sin, absolutely. But I need to talk to the Christians in the room real quick. When, hmm, how about we judge our own hearts? That's all I'm saying. Okay. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. These are bad people, right? They're gossips. We know those people, right? Slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. Evil. They disobey their parents. How did that one get in there? <laughs> it's like they're evil, they're slanderers, they're murderers, and they disobey their parents. All right, kids in the room. Your parents are using that one later today, all right? So, like, because if you disobey your parents, you're going to be this, right? Like, you're just going to be, like, but do you see the difference? Like, we would say one's really bad and one's not so bad. He's like, they're all in the list. They're all in there. Let me keep reading. They have no understanding, um, no fidelity, no love, no mercy, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. So they even celebrate everybody else who's a part of the club, right? He's talking about those who are wicked. And there's a key word in there that I, I don't want us to miss because it's, it's, he says it multiple times in this passage. 
And it's this word, God gave them over. God gave them over. Do you know we have a God who gives all of us free will? Every single one of us make choices, choices every single day. And he has given us free will to even do things complete opposite the way he would desire for our lives. Like, we are allowed to do that. This is what God gave them over. I would say God gave them over is free will minus God's presence. God says, you're allowed to do that. It's your life. You can choose to go down that path. You can choose to put the things in your body or do things with your body. But as you do that, just so you know, it will never fulfill you. It'll always leave you empty. And then you're going to try something else. And then you're going to go deeper into this trail over here and try that. And you're going to go deeper into this one over here. There is a never-ending pathway to that destruction. He will allow you to drink the poison, but the reality is the poison will still kill you. That's free will minus God's presence. And this is what he says. God gave them over to these three things in this passage. We said God gave them over to sinful desires, meaning they started sinning in, in a certain way, and then he says, that's your choice. And usually those sinful desires, the longer you go, turn into shameful lusts. A, de- a lust is deeper than desire. Desire is like, eh, this is kind of like longing. A lust is now it controls me, right? When it becomes something that you're, you're lusting after, you have lost self-control over that thing. And if you continue to walk into that lust of whatever that thing is, you eventually will have a depraved mind. You can no longer control your own thoughts. It is now controlling you. And you're looking for more, but it will never fill you. It'll never fulfill you. You'll never find the purpose of the longing in the depths of your heart in those things. But this is God. Yeah, he's judge. He sees, he sees it. But as judge, he allows you to, to go there. He, he allows you to sin against him. And so now you see this group and the wicked who are living this way walk in and they know. I, I know, I believe in God, but I'm just doing my own thing. And they know they're guilty and here they are. They're standing behind the defendant's table. And everyone else in the room is looking at them and saying, yep, they are the guilty ones. Right? The godless in the back are like, they are bad people. At least I'm not as bad as they. I don't believe in God, but at least I'm not bad. I'm not a bad, evil person. I'm not living like that. And then enters crowd number three. Okay? You ready for crowd number three? Yeah? Okay. Y'all are kind of quiet. Okay. So crowd number three. Crowd number three now enters in, and this is the religious and or the self-righteous come into the courtroom of heaven. And when they come into the courtroom, in this picture that Paul is talking about, he's talking directly to the Jews. The Jews throughout history were the ones that God gave the promises to. God, I mean, that goes back to their father Abraham. Like He said, yeah, Abraham's our father. God gave promises to Abraham, and we're living into those promises. They are our promises too now. We're the ones that were given the law. We're the ones that given the rule. We have all the Old Testament and the Torah. Like That's us. We're the Jews. We have all that. And so we know how to live with God, and God is ours. And so we know that God is good, and we're going to live for God. So we've got the rules. We're the good people. So we're coming in, and they're walking in. These Jews are walking into this courtroom, and they're thinking, well, I know where we go. I know where we're supposed to go. And they walk straight in, and they head right to the jury box. They're like, we're the good ones. We're the ones that can discern. And so they go up into that jury box because they're ready. They're even looking at everybody else in the room. They're like, oh, I know where they're going. I know the judgment for them back there. Those back row people, <laughs> whatever. 
they're not even getting anywhere close because they don't even believe anything that we have. And those people, I saw what they did. And so they're coming in, pointing their fingers at everybody else. Even one of them, he, doesn't, he bypasses the jury box. And he's like, you know what? I'm, I, he goes up to the, in front of the judge. He says, let me grab that because I'm going to give the judgment because I know what it should be. So he boldly goes up and says, let's just finish this case right now. And, and the judge says, whoa, 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 whoa. And he sets that gavel back down and says, this isn't your courtroom. And so the religious come in with their piety, with their self-righteousness, and they're ready to just point and yell guilty at everybody in the room. But Paul doesn't let them. Chapter 2, he talks to the religious and the self-righteous, and then this is what he says to that group. You, therefore, you have no excuses. You have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. God as judge will judge on truth. There's no lies in him. There's nothing he is hiding. Nothing will be hidden in front of him. He is truth. I'm glad we have a God who doesn't show favoritism. He only judges on truth. Verse 3, so when you, a mere human being, I love that sentence. <laughs> it sounds very superhero movie, like a hu- mere human being. It's like, so when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience? Listen to the character of God. Do you hear it? This is God. Or do you show contempt for the riches of who's God's kindness, his forbearance? That's his patience with us. We have a patient judge, patient and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. God's kindness draws us to him. It's not his mighty fist waiting to just pound you down. It's his kindness. It's his patience. It's his long suffering trying to draw us in. And he's pointing to the religious saying, Why would you show contempt to to God in this way? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. Whoa, he's pulling no punches to the Jews right in this moment. He's like, God sees it all and you think you're religious and right, but he's going to judge you the same way. Verse 7, to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, he says. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. This would have been upsetting to the Jews, right? The ones that thought they knew what, what, who God was, that they thought they knew they were right with God because they're living all the rules and they got the law. And they, He would have been like, no, you think you're in the jury. You better step out of that jury box right now, is what he says to them. And so they're pointing their fingers at somebody else, and now Paul is pointing his finger at them, and he is calling them guilty. You're trying to judge others 
for their sin, but God shows no favoritism on the level of sin. All sin is the same in the presence of a holy God. We can't get to him. He goes on further, and I don't have time to read the whole chapter, but he goes on further in chapter 2, and he just starts zinging them. Like, like, because for the Jews, um, the, he gets back into this whole circumcision thing, and I'm so glad that's not a thing, all right? So, um, because like for the Jews, the Jewish men, that was the sign of them belonging uh, to God's people, that they were circumcised. And, uh, and what he was saying to them at the end, he's like, if you're circumcised, but you're living a life not for God, it's as if you're not circumcised. He's like, the externals don't matter if your heart is in the wrong place with God. Like, for us, it would be like this. It'd be like, for us, like, baptism is our external. That's what we do externally to show the church that we internally have been saved, that we have a new reality in relationship with God, and that imagery in baptism is like, see, I belong to the family. I'm, my, I'm washed clean by the blood of Christ. That's what baptism is. It's like you as a Christ are being baptized, but when you go and live your life, it doesn't look like you've been baptized. It doesn't matter the outward thing. What is going on in your heart? That is what God will judge. Every action from our heart. He's calling out hypocrisy. And so you have the godless and the wicked, and maybe they're in this scene, and they're looking down at these Jews and saying, see, that's the reason I don't believe in God, because they're all hypocrites. They say they got it, but man, they're judging us, and they're being, doing the same stuff. That's why I'm not going to follow God. And some of you in this room, that's your story. You like Jesus, you just don't like people that say they love Jesus. <laughs> and that sucks. It's, reality is we're all hypocrites. We all can't get there. I love this scene showing the heart of Jesus in John chapter 8. Uh, we see this scene that uh, the, the Jewish leaders were continually trying to trip up Jesus. They're, they're trying to get him arrested. And, you know, ultimately they, they, they lived into their purpose and they, they were the ones that killed Jesus. But in this scene, they were trying to trip him up on something. And, and so these, these Jewish men went and found a woman caught in adultery. And their Jewish law said if a woman got caught in adultery, she had to be taken to the edge of the city and stoned, basically killed. Her, her, her penalty was death. Which, and when I read that, I'm like, well, where's the guy? Was he not a part of this story? Yes. Like, where's the dude? But no, they bring the woman because it was her fault. So they bring the woman to Jesus and say, she's been called an adultery. Our law says you have to, we should go out and stone her. What are we going to do? And Jesus doesn't say a whole lot in this scene if you've read it before. He just starts writing in the dirt. We don't even know what he wrote. I, I would assume that he started to jot down the sins of all these other Jews that were bringing accusation because it says one by one, each one of these men left and walked away. And then she was there by herself, and Jesus said, where are your accusers? And she said, they're all gone. And he says, I uh, don't accuse you. Now leave, I forgive you, and sin no more. It's the sin no more part, right? It's like, you already know you were guilty in doing something, but repenting is not doing it anymore. It's that choice. But we see the character of Jesus He's not one that's trying to come in and bring accusation. He wants to come in and do something completely different. So here we are in this scene. And um, 
maybe these Jews and maybe the godless, maybe even some of the guilty are in there, and some of them don't even know what they did wrong. That was me in Garfield Heights. You know, some of you are like, well, I, I don't know that I've sinned against God. I don't even know, I don't even know all the rules. So, like, if I don't know them, like, it doesn't, how can I be called guilty of something I don't know about? And, and the reality is, the rules are the rules, whether you know them or not. So, when I was in the court in Garfield Heights, I was standing in front of the judge, and he said, okay, the law here states that you had to do this, this, and this before you were able to move forward with this and this. Did you do that? I didn't know I had to do that. I didn't know that was the rule. I didn't know that was the law. I didn't know I was just fixing a basement. You know, I was just doing what I thought it was to flip a house. And uh, the, the reality was, whether I knew it or not, I broke the law of Garfield Heights, and I was found guilty as charged. It's the same way with God. Whether you know all the rules or don't know all the rules, just because you don't know them doesn't mean you're not guilty. I'm going to skip ahead to Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18. Because we move now, all of us are in the courtroom. All these crowds are in the courtroom, and all of them are realizing they're supposed to be standing behind the defendant's table. Right? This is what it says in Romans uh, chapter 3, starting in verse 9. And this is, this is kind of like Paul's final deposition. This is his final, like, okay, this is then, after all of this and after looking at all these different crowds, this is the final verdict of what we're seeing with these people. And we see him actually pull out of the Old Testament. These are kind of like seven uh, accusations against all of us. He says, For we have already made charge that the Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous not even one. There is no one un who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have uh, together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of, of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. He's making the claim, which he concludes down in verse 22. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. So he's saying all the crowds in the room, all the crowds in front of the final judgment, sitting before the final judge, God himself, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The verdict's in. We're all guilty. Every single one of us. That's what Paul says. That's what God says. And the mallet's already been hit on that judgment. That verdict is final. There's no removing that verdict. There's no like saying, no, 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 I have more argument. No, 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 I have more excuses. No, 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 I, wait a minute. I'm not, they're guilty. I'm not guilty. No, we're all guilty. And we're all behind the defendant's seat because everyone stands before God guilty of sin. In the court of heaven, every single one of us It says in Romans 14, 10, and we're going to get there, obviously, by the end of the series. 
says this, for we will all stand before God's judgment seat. Not a single one of us is going to get out of that courtroom. Every single one of us is going to give an account of our life. Every single one of us is going to have everything revealed before God. And, and just, you know, God knows it all. He knows all of our brokenness. He knows every bit of your sin. He knows that stupid thing you did yesterday. He knows that broken situation 10 years ago. He knows the way we have sinned, and he knows the way we've been sinned against. And all of that before him will be revealed and plain as day. And so the reality is every single one of this room is guilty. So I'm going to ask, would everyone who's guilty please stand? And so now it's you and me. And we're standing before the judge. And we're in the courtroom. And we, every single one of us, have been found guilty. And now we're wondering, what's the sentence? And the judge says, the sentence for sin is the death penalty. And there's no way around it. It's death. This whole time, your defending attorney has been just sitting there looking at the judge. And you see him start walking up to the judge, and they start talking. And you're wondering, what is going on? What is he saying? What's happening is a plea bargain is being worked out. And as you're kind of listening, you're trying to hear what's going on, but you don't really know what's going on. And then you see your defending attorney turn around and start walking back to you, and you realize it's Jesus. And he looks at you. He says, I just worked it out with the judge. I'm going to take that penalty. So you don't have to. I, just, I did a plea bargain with him. He said, yeah, the penalty's death, but I'm going to die for you, and I'm going to pay that penalty. I'm perfect. I'm not a sinner. And the only way that I can happen is because I'm perfect and I'm not a sinner, but I'm going to take your sin upon me. But here's the thing with a plea bargain. You have to agree to it. You have to sign on the line to say, I want that plea bargain. I want to accept this gift that you're giving me right now, Jesus. And whoever signs on that line and says, Jesus, would you die for me? I'm going to confess that you're the one that's doing this for me. And he turns around and he looks back at his father who's the judge. He says, Dad, I'm forgiving them. And he says, awesome, I forgive them. And he says, you can have a seat. Go ahead and sit. In the court of heaven, Jesus is the only one who has paid for the debt of sin in front of God. You cannot. You cannot. And so you have a choice. Do you take the plea bargain? Do you receive the gift of Jesus Christ dying in your place for your sins. And in turn, here's the crazy thing what the judge does. He says, now, not only that, 
Now I'm going to deposit all the right things, Jesus, that you have into their account. And now they're going to be right before me. And they can come to me through you anytime they want to. And we can hang out. That's the gift of salvation. Forgiveness given, sin removed, righteousness deposited. He makes us right. And today, we're going to respond in one of a couple of ways. Um, For those of you who are Christ followers today, we're going to celebrate through communion. We're going to be reminded of the cost for our forgiveness. Um, And so I I just want to prepare us for that, just for a time of response. Would you guys pray with me? God, as we take this time... um, God, there are those of us in this room who have been Christ followers a long time, but we've wandered away. Like, we believe in you, but we've kind of wandered. Today, we want to come back to you. We, we, we want to... We want to stop and say thank you for forgiving us. God, would you just show yourself to, to those that are coming back to you today? God, there's some in this room who've been Christians a long time, but they just need some revival in their hearts. And today, I I pray that you would help them to walk with just an amazing, thankful heart and spirit for the gift of salvation they've received. They would not take it for granted. Today, God, I know that there are those in this room that have not made a decision for you, and they have not signed the plea bargain of heaven. They have not accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of the sins. And today, I'm I'm asking, God, would you call them into your presence? Would you invite them? And as you are, you've already invited them. The gift is already in front of them. Would just help them by the power of your Spirit receive that gift of salvation today? They wouldn't run away from it. They wouldn't be confused by it. But they would just simply accept it. In a moment, we're going to stop and take communion. We're going to sing a song.